the Apostolic Church. This is what we affirm every week when we say the Nicene Creed. Uh, the four marks of the church historically are these four things, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And each of these four marks is demonstrated in Acts chapter 15, which we're going through in a four-part series uh, and looking each week at one of these marks. Uh, this week's focus is on the passage that you heard read from Acts 15, verses 12 to 21. You can turn to that passage in the church Bible. I think that would be helpful to you as, as we uh, go through the passage verse by verse. That's on page 791. And the focus tonight is on the second mark, the Holy Church. We're going to be looking at the Holy Church. Before we do so, let's pray. We give you praise, Holy Father, for your word, for it is truth, and we thank you for the gift of the Spirit by which we can understand what you have written and take it into our hearts and live accordingly. And so we pray that you would sanctify us by your word and render us a holy people, a holy church. Bless the hearing and the study of your word tonight, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So my daughter Vivian just got back from Morocco where she spent the summer as a language student, and she was one of about 600 high schoolers who uh, selected from across the country to go uh, overseas and to learn a foreign language. This whole thing was paid for completely by the State Department, um, and what a gift to be able to spend the whole summer uh, in Morocco and to learn Arabic, and so we're very, very proud of her. We're also very thankful that she uh, made it back on, on Wednesday and that we're together again. Um, with the extraordinary honor of this program also came rules and responsibilities, right? I mean, that's, that's what comes along with any sort of program like this, uh, rules and responsibilities for the students' protection overseas and also for the good name of the United States and, and the reputation of the Department of State. Everybody had to sign these agreements, parents and participants, um, regarding all kinds of things, what they would, what they would do, uh, how they would conduct themselves overseas. And of course, most of the kids lived according to these rules. But a number of them did break the rules. Some of them got into big trouble, and those that did were sent home. And they ended up being an embarrassment to themselves and their families and to our country. It's an extraordinary privilege to be a Christian, isn't it? If you come to faith in Jesus, it's a gift that you've been given. You're not doing Jesus a favor by becoming a Christian. You're not helping out his cause. Rather, it's he who helps us by laying down his life for us. He delivers us from death and destruction, not on the basis of our own merits, but instead solely by his grace. Peter made this point at the end of the last section, what we looked at last Sunday uh, in his speech in chapter 15 of Acts, verse 11, when he said that both Jews and Gentiles will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. The Christian faith is a gift. It's grace. It's an honor and a privilege to be a Christian. 
Now, with this tremendous privilege comes some responsibilities. Uh, in this case, because of the one whom Christians represent and because of the, the tremendous importance of the Christian mission. God calls us from death and destruction to himself for the life of the world. Or as Paul writes to the Ephesians, after affirming salvation by grace, he says after that, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand to do. Or elsewhere, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors for Christ. That's the job that he has given us. And therefore, we are expected to conduct ourselves in the world accordingly, not in order to earn God's favor, but to be those whom he has made us and redeemed us to be. To live otherwise is to take for granted the enormous privilege that it is to be a Christian. Today's lesson in chapter 15, verses 12 to 21, continues the deliberations of the Jerusalem Council. Uh, last Sunday, our focus was on the apostolic church. We saw in verses 1 to 11 that the foundation of the apostolic church is nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel message that Jesus gave to his apostles and sent them out to deliver to the world. It's a message that begins in the Old Testament and is fulfilled and completed in Jesus Christ. Because the apostolic message begins in the Old Testament, the circumcision question came up within the, the Christian community that had up until now been entirely Jewish, but now Gentiles are coming in. Were Gentiles now required to become Jews before they became Christians? The answer, as Peter explained, uh, and as we talked about last week, was that all who believe the gospel, both Jews and Gentiles, receive the Holy Spirit and their hearts are washed clean. A clean heart or a circumcised heart, as it might have been described in the Old Testament, was always the goal of circumcision uh, in, in the Jewish community. With hearts made clean through the Holy Spirit, the external sign of circumcision was no longer required for those who put their faith in Christ, and instead baptism became the sign for men and women, for Gentiles and Jews, of entrance into the church, signifying a heart washed clean. Now, in today's lesson, starting with verse 12, the council moves beyond the circumcision question, beyond what was required for entry, to consider what were the essential practices for all Christians everywhere. In other words, given the privilege of serving as Jesus's ambassadors, now what are the common sense rules and regulations, or rules and responsibilities that accompany this privilege? How, how shall we then live? That's what the second mark of the church, the holy, holiness of the church, that's what this uh, section is about. And there was a movement in the 19th century in America called the Holiness Movement, and it was a legalistic movement within Protestantism, and it was, uh, uh, it placed emphasis on teetotaling and on not going to shows or dancing or, you know, putting on very modest clothing, these kinds of things. Um, that movement is long gone. <laughs> um, the times have changed a tremendous amount, but still uh, it's, it's not uncommon when the word holiness is used that people think of those things. Now, that's the first thing that comes to mind. But the biblical idea of holiness doesn't begin with personal 
behavior. How Christians conduct themselves is more of a byproduct of the primary emphasis of holiness in the Bible, which is being consecrated or set apart or dedicated uh, for a relationship with God. We sing holy, holy, holy to God because God is the one who is supremely holy. Then uh, we become holy by virtue of having a relationship with him and only by virtue of having a relationship with him. The church is made up of those people who have been baptized into Christ and through union with Christ, we are made holy. That is, uh, we are consecrated, we're, we're dedicated, we're set apart for God. The Greek word for the church, ekklesia, means those who are called out. God calls Christians out because uh, he, he wants us to be separate from the world and dedicated to him. He calls us out of death and destruction to life, not to condemn the world, but for the life of the world. Like Jesus' prayer in John 17, we are in the world but not of the world because he's consecrated us for his service for the life of the world. Christian behavior, then, is a byproduct of this wonderful blessing of covenant relationship with a holy God. Because the Lord has called us to himself and privileged us as ambassadors for Christ, there are naturally certain rules and responsibilities that accompany this role. The church begins to define these things here in chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council. And these are being defined for Jews and for Gentiles. Now, so many people misunderstand the relationship between grace and law in the Bible uh, that I just want to make this point especially clear, make no mistake here, in shifting our attention this Sunday from what we talked about last Sunday. We talked about the apostolic church and, and the apostolic church being founded on the grace of the gospel. Now we're shifting to talk about the holy church but we're not moving away from the gospel. We're not moving away from grace. When we begin to talk about how we live, we are rather moving within the gospel, remaining ever conscious of the privilege, of the grace of the Lord Jesus who saved us. The privilege that it is to belong to Jesus and considering, therefore, what it means to live in union with him. And again, one should expect common sense responsibilities to accompany such a great privilege. With those things in mind, let's look at the verses in this passage and think together about what they have to say to us about being a holy church. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now the church was spreading like Jesus said it would, uh, first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And what had happened uh, was, you know, it, it was originally a Jewish movement, but then Gentiles started coming in, and there were some growing pains related to that. And Christian leaders, um, including Barnabas and Paul, came back to Jerusalem from the ends of the earth to talk about what to do with these Gentiles who were coming in. Uh, did they need to be circumcised or not? Did they have to become Jewish first or not? And, and Peter takes the floor in the last section uh, pay, uh, verse 9, he says, yes, they must be circumcised if what you mean by that is a circumcised heart. But no, if you're talking about the external circumcision thing, 
Uh, that's now irrelevant because of what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the circumcision of the heart. And uh, he, he concludes his speech, verse 11, saying, We believe that we Jews will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as the Gentiles will. Everybody who comes to faith in Christ receives the Holy Spirit and ends up with a circumcised heart, which was what it was always about, always from the beginning. And then Peter passed the mic to Bar Barnabas and Paul uh, and said, tell them what you've seen. And in verse 12, um, as we read, they testified to signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now we're starting to hear uh, echoes of the language that Peter used on Pentecost when he was quoting the Old Testament prophets and talking about this new day that had dawned, this last day's moment that had occurred uh, because Jesus the Messiah had come. He was starting to rule. The kingdom of God was spreading, and all the nations were starting to come in. This was a new day and a wonderful day, and for all who were gathered, no matter where they stood on this circumcision question, for all who gathered, this was wonderful news because it was what they were all hoping for and waiting for. Everybody was looking forward to the kingdom of God uh, being revealed and taking, uh, taking possession over all the earth. And the Gentiles were coming in, just as the Old Testament prophets had said. So everybody was celebrating. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, that is, Barnabas and Paul finished speaking, then James replied, brothers, listen to me. Say a word about this James. Uh, we believe this is not James, the brother of John. He died in Acts chapter 12, killed by Herod. Uh, this is a different James. We believe it's the brother of Jesus. And um, you may remember Jesus' family didn't believe in him before his crucifixion. But then after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to uh, uh, someone named James. We think it was Jesus' brother. And this James became uh, a leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he became the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. And he had that office for about... 30 years until he was martyred there. So James has an important role. He needs to be able to share some things in this gathering in Jerusalem. Uh, he wasn't the Pope. What he said wasn't going to be the final word, as we'll see next week, um, but his voice needed to be heard. So he addressed the crowd, beginning with a reference to Simon Peter's speech in the last section. This time he's using Aramaic, so he speaks of him as Simeon. So he says, verse 14, Simeon, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people, uh, take take from them a people for His name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written: After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by My name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. He's quoting here from the last chapter of the Old Testament prophet Amos, and James here confirmed all that Peter had said, what everybody was thinking, that the last days had come, uh, Jesus the Messiah was king, of, of, and the kingdom of God was unfolding, and all the nations were coming in. All people, Jews and Gentiles, could be saved through the grace of King Jesus. And no circumcision of the foreskin was not necessary for the Gentiles coming to Jesus. Nevertheless, there had to be some common sense rules and responsibilities for those who were privileged to be 
his ambassadors. And so he says, verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. He listed four common sense rules and responsibilities for Gentile believers. He says not to trouble them, but to help them be faithful ambassadors for Christ together with their Jewish brothers and sisters. Whether or not the Gentiles who became Christians circumcised their sons didn't matter. Whether or not they ate pork didn't matter. Whether or not they observed Jewish holidays didn't matter. Um, ethnically Jewish Christians could do these things and they might, they might want to do these things for the sake of their relatives. Uh, the Gentiles didn't have to do these things if they didn't want to. They could. They could be circumcised if they wanted. They didn't have to. Uh, but here James is saying these, these things, however, these things are important for everyone in the church regardless of ethnicity. And these things were abstaining from idolatry, sexual immorality, the strangled, we'll talk about that in a second, and blood. We will come back to each of these in a moment, but I want to say first a word about how James came up with these four things. Uh, nobody knows for sure, but it seems likely that it was based on his careful reading of Moses' law, the, the, uh, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Torah sometimes. You, uh, heard the very last verse James mentioned that Moses was read in synagogues everywhere on Saturdays. And he, in saying Moses was read, he's talking about those first five books of the Old Testament. And if you were to read through the Torah, those books, you would encounter uh, many rules that were given to the Jews after the exodus from Egypt. Some of these are pretty confusing to us today. Uh, nevertheless, the logic behind all of them, from start to finish, was this. Uh, the primary sense of holiness that we're talking about, being consecrated to the Lord. That's what all of those laws were about. God rescued the Jews, not only from back-breaking slavery in Egypt, but also he rescued them out of uh, darkness, out of uh, pagan polytheism, and he uh, he rescued them and brought them out uh, to himself, but they needed a complete reboot of their culture. So God called them out, and he gave them a way of life that was kosher, meaning it was, it was clean or pure. And it was a way of life that was kosher not just in terms of what they ate or what they did with their foreskins, but it was everything. All of life was to be circumcised. That's the meaning behind uh, the various laws given to the Jews in the Torah. A few of those laws in, in the fi first five books of the Bible, a few of those laws are introduced in such a way as to say, not only shall the Jews keep these commandments, but also any Gentiles who are sojourning with you, any Gentiles who come to stay with you. And presumably this was because these things 
that Gentiles would do. Gentiles would do a lot of things, but these particular things, should they bring these particular practices into your community, these things are immediately toxic to your life as the people of God. These things are immediately corrosive, and therefore you mustn't allow these things to come in at all. You have to absolutely block them from doing these things. And now James is saying these, uh, these things, these four practices, uh, are an immediate threat to the holiness of the church. And it's likely that these were derived from some universal principles in the Mosaic Law, uh, and James is now applying them to the church. So let's look at each of them individually. The first one, abstain from idolatry. If you think about the Jews after the exodus from Egypt, um, of course they're forbidden from worshiping idols, but also it's said that the Gentiles mustn't bring their idols in. You, if you imagine this sort of exchange program uh, between some of the surrounding nations and the Jews, high schoolers going back and forth between them and the sort of uh, forms that had to be signed beforehand, you know, those high schoolers would have to promise and swear that they would not bring in any of those little wooden idols. They wouldn't bring in any, any of the, the beads or jewelry that was associated with them. They couldn't bring in any food or drink that was associated with them. They must not say those prayers or speak their names or wear those t-shirts or anything related to uh, Baal or Dagon or any of those gods. Sign the form knowing that if you bring any of that in, you're going to be sent home. Those were the rules. Nobody kept the rules. Uh, the Jews didn't even keep those rules. That's the reason that they ended up going into exile. But that's what was intended from the Mosaic Law, um, that absolutely no idolatry would be tolerated in the community of God because God is holy, because he will not have any other gods before his people. And James is saying, hey, this, this holds true. This holds true for all Christians, Jews and Gentiles. It's the same for us. Uh, you're welcome to remain uncircumcised, but you mustn't bring into the church any pagan idolatry, any pagan theology or cult practices whatsoever. And why is that? Because the holy church was consecrated to the Lord. Paul later writes to the church in Corinth, uh, you must flee from idolatry. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord uh, and the cup of demons. You cannot eat from the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Uh, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy, he asks. Um, idolatry is fundamentally corrosive to the Christian faith. We're set apart. We're consecrated to the Lord, and idolatry cannot be tolerated at all within the church. That's the first thing. The second thing is abstaining from sexual immorality. The Mosaic Law also restricted sexual practice to uh, a man and a woman who were married to one another. And this was true for Gentiles living in the community as well as for the Jews. And because the other nations had wildly different sexual practices than what God prescribed in his law, the Mosaic Law is pretty uh, expansive on this topic, uh, giving all the possible relations for incest that must be forbidden and uh, identifying all the other things that are forbidden, prostitution, same-sex practice, sex with animals, all these kinds of things. 
And all of this was summarized by a word that is translated here as sexual immorality. There is no question whatsoever that James had exactly the same things in mind when he wrote this as what was in the Mosaic Law. What was understood about sexual practice in the Old Testament was exactly the same uh, as James wrote to the church, the same ethic exactly. Sexual intercourse as it was instituted in creation before the fall uh, within marriage of a woman and a man was of course good and right. As Paul would later say uh, to the Ephesians, um, there is something magical about that union, a mystical cosmic sign from that union that points to the future when Christ the bridegroom comes for his spotless bride. And every marriage between a man and a woman has, has this power to point people to that coming day. Any and all other sexual practices act as false signs. They tell lies about the future, and they undermine and confuse the truth, not only about human marriage, but also about Jesus and his bride, the church. Now, pagans will undoubtedly keep doing all the crazy things they do sexually, and they, they will keep doing that all around you. Do not let them bring it into the church. It must not happen. Sexual immorality is prohibited because it is corrosive to our faith and to our community. That was the second thing. The third thing uh, is harder to understand. That one's very clear. This one's harder to understand. Abstain from the strangled. And a better translation would probably be smothered. Um, the reason that this one is uncertain is because the word that's used here is used so rarely in the ancient world. It occurs 20 times in a period of 300 years for all the literature that we have, the Greek literature that we have from that period. Um, there are good reasons to think that what James is talking about here is infanticide. Um, since disposing of unwanted children uh, was common back then, as it is today, uh, but the, the way that it happened back then was um, through smothering the infant after uh, the infant was born. This was safer for the mother than abortion, and it was also legal. Um, because the Greek word that's translated here as strangled or smothered is exceptionally rare, we really can't know for certain that James was talking about infanticide. Uh, it may be that he was talking about um, kind, a kind of meat, um, meat that's, that's uh, prepared by not cutting an animal's throat but strangling the animal. That's a possibility. And... Um, I do believe that American Christians today need to think about where our food comes from and especially where our meat comes from and how meat is prepared and slaughtered. I think that's a very good thing for us to talk about and think about. Nevertheless, I'm inclined to think that infanticide was and is a much more serious issue uh, and is the kind of thing that is immediately corrosive to the new creation community uh, that the church is. We have to live differently because we are set apart and consecrated to the Lord of life. The fourth thing, abstain from blood. Within the Jewish community, blood was sacred because it was the essence of life. One did not eat or eat blood or drink blood or have any contact with blood whatsoever without becoming unclean. 
And meanwhile, the pagan world uh, had blood sacrifice going on all the time, all around, uh, happening everywhere. And blood from those sacrifices was thought to have kind of magic powers. Christians, both Gentiles and Jews, were to abstain from blood because through the shed blood of Christ, sin and death had been conquered once and for all. And because of Jesus' resurrection, Christians had now become agents of a new creation of life springing up, beating swords into plowshares, uh, laying down their weapons, turning the other cheek, making peace instead of war, seeking life instead of death. Blood was all around them in the form of violence as well as pagan rituals. But for Christians, any blood other than the cup of communion was too corrosive to be permitted within their new creation community. We are set apart, we're consecrated to the resurrected Lord. We're his ambassadors and all life must be sacred to us. Those are the four things that James uh, put down as rules and responsibilities for ambassadors for Christ. And I wonder if you noticed the logic behind these things as he laid them out. All of them are pointers to holiness beginning with God, who is the source of everything that is holy. Anything that becomes holy only does so by virtue of contact with him. So the first prohibition, abstaining from idolatry, centers our life together on the one true God who is holy, holy, holy. He defines our identity as the church. And then secondly, in abstaining from sexual immorality, we are a community that regards marriage as sacred because it keeps us focused on the future, on the life that is to come when Christ returns for his spotless bride. And then thirdly, in abstaining from the strangled and from blood, we are a community that regards life as sacred because it keeps us focused on our mission. We are ambassadors for Christ, proclaiming his death and resurrection and inviting all nations to join in resurrection life. Living holy lives before the Lord honors the one who calls us out of death and destruction to himself for the life of the world. And it's also a way of loving a world in which nothing is sacred, nothing is holy, and is utterly lost apart from God. And I wonder if you see this. The church is to be holy, set apart, and to live differently from the world, not out of hatred, but out of love. These practices are for the life of the world, because life isn't sacred in our world, is it? Whether because of the termination of life in pregnancy, or the termination of life at the end through euthanasia, uh, or in the prime of life through violent bloodshed, gun violence, or addiction, or whatever. The world needs a holy church who demonstrates that all life is sacred. And life isn't sacred in our world because sex isn't sacred. Premarital sex, extramarital sex, pornography, prostitution, multiple partners, same-sex partners, and so on, are all ways that sex has become disconnected from what God intended. These are all ways of seeking love or pleasure or satisfaction or relationship apart from Jesus. It'll never work. 
It'll never work. The world needs the church to be holy and to demonstrate that sex is sacred. And sex isn't sacred in our world because the world has rejected God himself. People want wealth and popularity and power and pleasure, so they turn away from the living God and they worship created things. That's idolatry. And that's the source of all of these problems. That's where it begins. The world needs the church to be holy and to demonstrate that nothing other than God himself is worthy of our lives and worship. James said, verse 19, that the church should not trouble the Gentiles, by which he was referring to making circumcision mandatory for Gentiles coming in. Uh, it would be an obstacle for those who wanted to come to faith in Jesus. Instead of troubling them with circumcision, he, he outlined these four practices as rules and responsibilities for a holy church, for the life of the world. And I wonder how they strike you now. Do they strike you as equally troubling, perhaps even more so? The church goes to great lengths today not to trouble anybody. Try to remove every obstacle that would keep people from being offended in any way. But in so doing, we often go too far, don't we? We remove not only unnecessary stumbling blocks, but we end up removing those things that make us holy, those things that set us apart, those things that identify us as belonging to God, consecrated to God in relationship with Him. So then we become like the world, falling into idolatry, no longer treating life or sex as sacred, and the world loses the light. Not only do these things disqualify us as Christ's ambassadors, but they, they leave a dying world without the witness it needs. The Lord calls us from death and destruction to himself for the life of the world. No turning back. It's a fabulous privilege to be his ambassadors in the world. And there are common sense rules and responsibilities that accompany this privilege. Consider, consider James's expectations for a holy church and ask whether you may have forsaken your first love. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. His grace is sufficient for all of us who have all broken these rules in one way or another. And his grace is sufficient for all who truly turn to him in repentance and faith. He alone is the source of life and love and all that is holy. Let's turn to him in prayer now. We praise you, Almighty God, for the great privilege that it is to be rescued by you, for the gift that it is to be in relationship with you, the honor that it is to be used by you as your ambassadors 
And we pray now for your grace to be at work in empowering us to live lives that bring you honor and glory and that show the world these things and point the world to you for the life of the world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.